I know I've told you uh, before about my friend Robert Chapman, and I know I've told you this story before, but I just can't resist telling it again, so forgive me. But Robert Chapman was a uh, pastor in Bristol, England back in the 1800s. He had been a lawyer and then repented of his wickedness and became a pastor. I always joke about that. Uh, He was a pastor in Bristol. He was good friends with another friend of mine, George Mueller, who you may remember. Robert Chapman had this reputation, though, for just being a a sweet and loving and caring man. He never married, and so he took advantage of that and used his house as basically a a, a place to take care of missionaries and visitors and guests. And he was very uh, he was renowned for his hospitality, and um, he he had been uh, you know of uh, of the the status of gentleman in uh, British society in the 1800s. And so it was really weird that he had such a servant's heart and people thought it was kind of unusual. All that to say he had a cousin one time who came to visit him because he was so famous. He had gotten this reputation. So the cousin came and said, I want to see my my cousin, this, you know, well-known preacher or pastor, and I want to see his, his hospitality, you know, on display. So the cousin visits, and he comes into the home. He's welcomed into the home, and, you know, Robert Chapman's showing him around, and they come into the kitchen where the pantry is, and, then, and they open up the pantry, and it's like, you know, bare. It was like the Costco shelves back in 2020. I mean, it was like there was nothing in there, right? And so the cousin is shocked. He's like, you're supposed to be this renowned, you know, king of hospitality. And I come in here and, you're, and there's nothing in the, in the cupboard. He says, I'm going to take care of it. He says, I'm going to go to Costco. It wasn't called Costco. I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going I'm to fill up your pantry so you can use the groceries for God's glory. And Robert Chapman's like, praise the Lord. Amen. Off we go, right? So, so he sends the cousin out. And he says, actually, go ahead and go. But he says, before you go, I want to make sure that you go to this particular grocer. This particular grocery store. So it was a little further away, but just trust me, go to this one, right? So the cousin's like, fine, whatever. So maybe he knows something about, you know, where they get the produce from or whatever. So the cousin goes to the grocer, and he puts in this massive order. You know, it was like a, like a two-carter at Costco, like, a, you know, a big order, right, to fill the, to fill the, uh, the, pa- the pantry. And, uh, you know, he gives the whole order to the grocer's like, this is, this, this is making my month. He's like really excited about, the, you know, all that. And he's writing the whole thing down. And then it gets to the very end and the grocer says, so where am I supposed to deliver these groceries? And uh, the cousin says, to the house of Robert Chapman. And the grocer stops and he says, can you repeat that? And he said, the house of Robert Chapman. What the cousin didn't know was that this grocer had been in a public feud with Robert Chapman for years. He had maligned him. He had slandered him in public. He had published things against him. He had spoken ill of him every chance he had. To that grocer, Robert Chapman was his enemy. The next day, the cousin arrives back at Robert Chapman's house. They're delivering the groceries, and he finds the grocer and Robert Chapman embraced. Forgiveness grace and restoration had happened it's a beautiful story but i share it with you this morning because i know that we all have our grocers we all have those people who are our enemies our nemeses right we have those who are in opposition to us and we face opposition we have enemies in all different kinds right in all different varieties 
You may be a student at school and you may have another student who just loves to get your goat. You may be uh, at your workplace and have someone who's just always seems like they're trying to take advantage of you or bully you or take, take advantage of your work and take credit for your work or, or just get at you. And, or you may think that uh, there's a particular politician in town who never gives you the permits for the remodel for your house because they're trying to get at you or, or kind of get more money out of you. And, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's not even a personal enemy. Maybe it's like a class of person where you always feel like, oh, the police are always out to get me. Why? Am I the only one who gets pulled over for tickets? Or why is this uh, you know, political party always against me and, and what I'm trying to accomplish? And so we have, we have the enemies. We have these, these, op, uh, these opponents in life. And Robert Chapman is an example to us because he took Jesus' teaching on how to handle enemies absolutely literally. It's not, it's not hard to see the main point of our passage this morning. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. But you need to ask the question this morning, well, what about me? Are you ready to love an enemy? Are you ready to to love those who stand against you? You see, in our natural state of thinking, enemies are to be opposed, defeated, resisted, and conquered. Enemies are to be loved? It is shocking. And it really picks up on the theme that Jesus introduced in the last section in the Sermon on the Mount. We covered that two weeks ago, if you'll remember, where he calls us to basically let go of self-centeredness. That kingdom citizens refuse to be self-centered. And part of that specifically now relates to how we handle our enemies. So I would just challenge you this morning as we get into these verses to think very specifically about people you would consider your enemies. If you need to, write the names down. And let's look together at these verses and see what God has to say to us. In verse 43, Jesus clarifies the issue. And remember, in all these examples in chapter 5, he's been uh, clarifying misunderstandings of the Old Testament law. So in verse 43, Jesus says to the crowd, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right, we'll pause right there. So Jesus here, when he says, love your neighbor, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. He's uh, quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, uh, verse 18. And so in that section, it's not, it's not difficult to understand. Love your neighbor. There's a focus there on Israelites loving other Israelites in their community. In your Bible, potentially, if your Bible marks Old Testament quotations, it'll have the first part of that quotation marked as, as being from the Old Testament. In my Bible, it's in bold, right? But then the second half isn't in bold and hate your enemy. You will look in vain for a verse in the Old Testament, even in Deuteronomy, that says hate your enemy, right? It's not there. So what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about, again, a popular misapplication of the Old Testament law. So this is how it works, right? Uh, People, because we struggle with sin and we're selfish, we read that that phrase, that, that command, love your enemy or love your enemies, and it says, love your enemies, especially in your community. And so, you know, lo- excuse me, love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor. Love, the, love those that are around you in your community. And so we, of course, ask the question that, you remember in Luke 10, someone asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Let's get technical about this, okay? Love your neighbor as well. What exactly do we mean? I mean, this is New Jersey, let's be honest. So we got to, you know, we got we to pare that list down, right? Because love is hard. And so if we're going to love, love all my neighbors, Jesus, obviously in Leviticus, he doesn't mean love all my neighbors. So which specific neighbors are we talking about? 
love the neighbors that are in my, in my housing development. Okay, I can maybe work with that, but maybe that won't even work. I'll have to, I'll have to limit it, right? And so out of self-centeredness, we, we naturally are inclined to limit the call to love our neighbor, right? So Jesus says, what's happened though is that you've misunderstood that command and you've actually believed and practiced the inverse of it. You thought it said, love your neighbor, ah, which that means I'm allowed to hate my enemies. I can love my neighbor, limited group, but then also I'm free now to hate my enemies. And so they used actually this word of God as justification to fuel their hatred of their enemies. Hatred here is a result of self-worship. Hatred is a result of self-worship. And just so we're all clear, the Old Testament law does not teach that you can hate your enemy in fact, even in Leviticus 19, just if you read a little bit further on in verses 33 and 34, there's instruction given to Israel about treating uh, foreigners well and not, not hating them, not treating them poorly. You can go to Proverbs 24 and 25, which talk about uh, treating your enemies well. You can even go to Exodus 23. This is one of my favorites where there's an Old Testament law that says if you're traveling around town and you see your enemy's donkey, you are obligated to return said donkey to your enemy. Like that's really the heart of God for your, for your enemies. I, just so we're all really clear, donkeys are the worst, right? I mean, can we just be clear about that? So they're, they're obstinate animals, okay? And so if you see your enemy's donkey, like if you're out driving, you see your enemy's donkey, your natural reaction is going to be, <laughs> their donkey's out. They're going to have a terrible time getting their donkey back. And maybe you just might even honk a little bit, try to get the donkey to run away a little further. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear about this one, you know? In Exodus 23, God says, stop, get out, and try to get that donkey back to your enemy. That's crazy. Actually, the next verse, it says, if you see your enemy's donkey and this load is too big, you need to stop and actually help carry the burden of the donkey, alleviate his load so that way he can get the job done. For your enemies, you're supposed to do this. That's what the law says. That's God's heart. But what do we do because of sin? The same thing was happening when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. We justify hatred of our enemies. Again, hate is a result of self-worship. We justify it. We're not going to take time to help out my enemy with this donkey. Forget that. No way. I don't have to love my enemy. I just have to love my neighbors and only specific neighbors at that. The problem here is that self-worship results in limiting God's call to us to love others. And so we just justify hating enemies. Now, what does this look like for us today? Well, it looks like savaging others on social media. It's so easy to do. Impersonal. You can just tag somebody, comment on a post, whatever, right? You can run them down. It looks like gossip and slander, where we take opportunities to make our enemies look worse. Maybe it looks like backstabbing or bullying. Again, with that example of a school or at the workplace, you know, somebody's getting at you, so you're going to get at them, and you're going to manipulate and scheme and plan and all that and get your revenge. And of course, the absolute worst case is it might result in actual violence against someone. There's a physical confrontation. Or maybe it's less dramatic than that, and it's just avoidance of an enemy. Ghosting. You see their donkey, you just want to look the other way and just let them suffer. Right? Self-worship here says, I am more important than my enemy. Self-worship says, loyalty to me matters more than loyalty to God and so here, right at the outset, Jesus confronts this false thinking where they twisted the word of God. Love your neighbors, fine, but I'm allowed to hate my enemies. Jesus says, no, that's not going to work. 
that is not going to work for my followers. And so even just thinking about verse 43, we have an opportunity this morning to repent, to repent of self-worship as it's expressed by hating our enemies. We just have an opportunity to go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for justifying hatred of my enemies. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that your enemies are right. Jesus is not saying that your enemies haven't failed. He isn't saying that there aren't issues that need to be dealt with. But he is saying that this excuse that you can just hate your enemies, like that's not going to fly. And so there's an opportunity again we have to repent. Why? Because Jesus calls us to so much more. Look at verse 44. Jesus goes on, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Just pause there with verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Two sides of this command, both essentially getting at the same idea. Jesus says, I'm calling you to love your enemies. Which sounds like what it is. I'm calling you to care about your enemies. I'm calling you to prioritize your enemies. Furthermore, I'm calling you to pray for those who persecute you. There's an interesting theme in the Gospel of Matthew where persecution is an expected component of following Jesus. It's just part of being a kingdom citizen is that until the Lord returns, we will face opposition. And so he says, when you are opposed, don't curse your enemy. Don't attack your enemy. Pray for your enemy. Pray for him. It's so radical. It's so otherworldly. It's so alien and foreign to our way of thinking, isn't it? Jesus says kingdom citizens love their enemies. What's interesting is why. Watch verse 45 as he goes on. So that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you pause there, verses 44, or excuse me, verse 45, Jesus says, love your enemies. Why? Because you're a child of God. That's why. Now, the way he terms this here, he's not saying love your enemies so that you can become a child of God. God here is already referred to as your father. So you're, you're already a, fo- a follower. You're already a son or daughter of the father. But because you are, act like it. You know the old phrase, like father, like son? Yeah, it's unfortunately accurate. Can I get an amen? Yeah, it is in our family. Unfortunately accurate. Like father, like son. Well, spiritually, that principle is in play here. Jesus says the reason why we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us is because like father, like sons and daughters. That's, That's the idea. And how do we know that God cares for his enemies? Well, Jesus uses two specific examples of common grace, That's a term theologians use to talk about ways that God just blesses everybody on earth, right? So he says, here are two examples. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. The sun rises and the sun shines on the evil and the good. God does not discriminate with sunshine. That's a blessing. It's a kindness. It's a way that God loves the evil and the good, a general common expression of grace. Secondly, he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. When it rains, it benefits people enemies are not that they're they're benefited by the rain and so jesus says in the sunshine and in the rain you have two very practical examples of ways that god does not discriminate in his love and care for people 
Therefore, you should do that. Therefore, we are called as kingdom citizens to love our enemies. Notice verse 46 and 47. He has a couple of, uh, of rhetorical questions here just to drive the point home. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Tax collectors were not popular in the first century in Israel. They were uh, Jews living amongst other Jews who had agreed to collect taxes. And as part of their agreement, they were allowed to charge any fee they wanted and they could just pocket that. So they were driving Maseratis around in town, having paid for that with money that they extorted from their neighbors. So now they didn't have Maseratis back then, but you get the idea, right? So they, they were not popular, right? And so here Jesus says, listen, if you only love people who love you, like you're not getting an award for that. Like the tax collectors do that. You love people that are nice to you. You love people that shower you with gifts. You love people that give you preferential treatment. Oh, congratulations, you're human. Like there's nothing special about that. So don't limit your love. I love your neighbors. Okay, I'm just going to love those people that are in my go zone that I really enjoy, that I get along with well. Those are the people that I love, right? That's easy. Anybody does that. You don't have to have faith to do that. That's just natural human nature. So he says, tax collectors do that. Second example, verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same. There was actually, uh, in one particular case, some rabbinic teaching that you should only say shalom, the Jewish greeting, which is peace, right? You should only say shalom to other Jews uh, because you don't want peace to be happening with other with others, right? And so it, it was like there was like a rule about it or, or a debate about it. So Jesus here is saying, well, if you only greet those that are your brothers and sisters, and you only wish them well, and you only relate to them, isn't that what Gentiles do? They do the same kind of thing. You know, the Gentiles greet Gentiles, the Jews greet Jews. Like, that's, that's naturally what you're going to do. Jesus says, I'm calling you to so much more. Kingdom citizens love their enemies. Now, let's just unpack this concept, all right? That's here in verses 44 to 47 in three ways. First of all, the calling. We're called to love and pray for our enemies. That love is not some kind of a uh, non-confrontational, you know, hippie dream, all right? So, like, that, he's not saying, oh, just pretend that there's no issues. Pretend that everybody's uh, lovey-dovey, happy, rainbows, butterflies, and just kind of, you know, put on a fake smile. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. But he is saying, he is saying that, that to love your enemies means you will treat them with kindness, compassion, and even preferential treatment at times. Think about that. Your enemies. Treating them with kindness, compassion, and giving them preferential treatment. This love assumes persecution. But again, Jesus calls us to actively pray for our enemies, which means we give it some thought. Who are those people that are so against me that are driving me crazy? How can I pray for them? What madness is this? It's kingdom living. It's contrary to our natural inclination and, frankly, our cultural expectation. We live in a culture where it is expected that we will hate our enemies. You know how I know this? Customer service. <laughs> Here we go. All right. This is where Jesus is getting into your kitchen right now, okay? 
because the entire, the entire field of customer service, like there are, only, there are only certain, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there are only certain kinds of individuals, if a company's doing their job right, there are only certain kinds of individuals that will be hired to work in customer service. Because in customer service, you need someone who is patient and who basically is willing to take verbal bullets all day, every day for money. They can't pay enough, right, for people to do this job, right? But we've all experienced it because we've all been on the other side of that call where they got something wrong and we're out for justice, right? We're going to get it right. And at that moment, Dyson is your enemy or Apple or whatever company it is you're calling, right? And you're like, I am going to get, can I talk to your manager, please, right? This level. Because as a culture, we just expect that we're going to be in opposition to others and that we're going to be fighting and we're going to be uh, grappling against each other and we're just going to push and push and claw and try to get what we want. You want to you blow customer service's mind? Ask them if you can pray for them at the end of that conversation. <laughs> See what happens. I've actually done that a couple times and I'll tell you what happens is that person immediately ceases to become a plastic enemy, a 2D enemy, and they become a three-dimensional person. And believe it or not, I've had people actually share with me prayer requests. It's like, it's a whole different ballgame. The culture doesn't expect us to love our enemies. They expect us to fight, to scheme, and to manipulate. But the calling to Christians, the calling to followers of Jesus as kingdom citizens is to love our enemies and pray for them. You might think about specific ways you can love and pray for the enemies in your life. That's the calling. Let's think about the model. Again, it's God's common grace. He gives without distinctions. I wonder, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what would it look like for us to love without distinction? Again, to not, to not limit our love. Again, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Like, what, who am I really? no. Jesus is like, you're asking the wrong question. It's not just love my neighbor and hate my enemies. You just, we're going to love them all. We're going to love everybody. And we're going we're to prefer everybody. You know, the Apostle Paul calls us to the exact same way of living in Philippians chapter 2. And he bases it there on Jesus' example for us. It's the same idea. Listen, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But rather, in humility, think of others as more important than yourselves. Christians love without distinction. I wonder if maybe there are some in your life, maybe you wouldn't call them enemies, but you've just given yourself permission not to love them. You've just kind of given yourself a pass. Kingdom citizens love their enemies. The model is God's character, God himself. And it's because we are his sons and daughters that we will reflect this character and we will love without distinction. That's the calling, that's the model but it, even as we talk about that model, we talk about God's love for us. I think we realize that that love goes further than just sunshine and rain. You keep reading in Matthew, and what does Jesus do for his enemies? Jesus certainly endured persecution for his enemies. He certainly put up with a lot from his enemies. But fundamentally, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew... What happens? Jesus goes to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, he does so for his enemies. Do you remember? This is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. But do you remember as Jesus is 
going to the cross and as he's being beaten and as he's being crucified, you remember what he says? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Pray for those who persecute you. There's your model. But as we think about Jesus loving and praying for his, <clears throat> his enemies, we realize that that goes beyond just general categories, but it goes to specific individuals. In fact, we just have to be really clear about it. There was a day that you and I were enemies of God. And Jesus loves his enemies. And he went to the cross to make his enemies his brothers and sisters. He went to the cross to make his enemies his friends. This is the climax. Where we see not just the general love of God for the world on display, but we see the specific love of God for sinners expressed as Jesus died on the cross for us. The Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans 5, verse 10. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, how much more will we be blessed through his life? But the argument there says is it makes an assumption. If we were enemies, and then we were reconciled to God through Christ, dying for our sins, then how much, you know, God's going to bless us with so much more. But the argument is simple, that Jesus dies for his enemies. He didn't die for people who were already predisposed to love him. He didn't die for people who had already figured it out and cleaned themselves up and gotten righteous. He died to make his enemies righteous, to make his enemies clean, to make his enemies his friends, his brothers and sisters, his fellow citizens. Kingdom citizens love their enemies. And brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you that Jesus loves you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that in one sense, you very much stand in enmity, right? As an enemy of God, because your sin is a barrier. Your sin is a problem. But rather than attack you and come at you, God is chasing after you in Christ. That's the gospel. That Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And by faith in him, you can go from being an enemy to being a friend of God. That's what happens when we put our faith in Jesus. And that is why Christians live differently with regard to our enemies. Now, you might be sitting here this morning thinking, this is all really challenging, and indeed it sure is, right? It's a high calling. Yes, it is. But the fact is, it's just one part of not just a high calling, but the highest calling. As if this wasn't challenging enough, watch verse 48. Right? As Jesus rounds out this section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a little to-do for you this week. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I just love how he just throws that in. But he's not throwing it in. This is a summary statement, really, of verses 20 all the way down to 48 of chapter 5, where Jesus has been reviewing the law and clarifying and expounding on the true meaning of God's law. But as Jesus has been doing that, remember he said, uh, before we got into it, he says, you know, if you're going to really get into heaven, you have to have greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. And his hearers are thinking, what greater righteousness is there? He says, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me explain it to you. So he's given all these examples. He gets to the end of the examples, at least from the law here. He's going to do more in chapter 6. But he gets to the examples, the end of the examples from the law. And he says, let's just sum it all up, shall we? Be perfect. Be perfect. Well, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
This is actually articulated in the law again, Leviticus chapter 19, maybe with a little Deuteronomy 18, 13 sprinkled on top there. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. What is he talking about? What is he saying? He's saying, don't let yourself off the hook by comparing yourself to the other scribes or Pharisees or to your neighbors, right, or to your culture. The real change here is not the call to holiness or perfection. The real change here is the standard of how we measure that perfection, okay? So the calling is be perfect. I'm going to talk about how it relates to salvation in just a moment, but just note what he says. Be perfect, therefore, in what sense? What are we talking about? What's what's the, the baseline here? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So now we, we have a standard by which we measure holiness or kingdom living or kingdom character, right? What we're called to as believers. And what Jesus argues here is he says, I just want to clarify that the scribes and Pharisees who have been, who have been congratulating themselves because they hadn't committed adultery and they hadn't murdered anybody and all this other stuff, that they're loving their neighbors really well, but then they're hating their enemies and they're harboring adultery in their hearts and they're hating people in their hearts. Jesus says, these guys are so far from what God calls you to. God calls you to something so much greater. What is God calling us to? He's calling us to be perfect. Not as a means of getting into the kingdom, let's be really clear, but as the ethic by which kingdom citizens live. So we're going to talk about his grace. It's by his grace that Jesus announces the arrival of his kingdom. It's by his grace that he makes his enemies into kingdom citizens, his brothers and sisters. It's by his grace and his love that he does that. But when he does that, what does he do that for? He does it to summon us to a new way of living. How shall we summarize this way of living? Be perfect. Be perfect. Now, some of us are really task-oriented, and we're twitching. So just hold on a second, okay? So we're we're going we're to unpack it. But we just want to be really clear. Kingdom citizens live like the king. Kingdom citizens live like the king. Uh, the other day, I was doing some work at the house, and I'd gotten out my trusty measuring tape of many years, okay? And um, I didn't realize it, but the end of the measuring tape had gotten kind of bent and skewed out of, out of place. And so I'm like measuring stuff, you know, and then I go and I have a different measuring tape in the, in the garage that I was using in the house. And so I'm, I measure and then I cut the thing and I take it in and it doesn't fit, right? I'm like, these children of mine, what have they done? You know, this is probably their fault. So I, I blame them and I go back out and I, I measure the thing again. I go, I cut it, I cut it short again. Like, what is going on? Lord, why me? You know, like that kind of thing. Well, what's wrong? Well, the wrong is, the thing that happened was I was using a faulty measuring stick, right? I was using a faulty device for measuring what I needed to cut because it was broken at the end. So I was, everything was a half inch off because it was twisted. And I didn't realize I should have taken time to look, right? So there it is. Welcome to my world, right? That's, that's how I live. That, that broken measuring tape meant every measure was distorted. Listen. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you're going around comparing yourself to your neighbors, you're comparing yourself to who you see on social media, you're comparing yourself to other people, right? Your standard of measure is off. That you'll always be short. 
And you may be letting yourself off the hook in all of these areas that Jesus has talked about in chapter 5. But specifically, with regard to enemies, you may be letting yourself off the hook by saying, I'm allowed to hate my enemies. I just have to love my neighbors, right? He said, you may be letting yourself off the hook because you're using a faulty, a faulty measurement, a faulty standard for what God calls us to. Kingdom citizens live like the king. And so when Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, he does not mean this in the sense of this is an unattainable to do that you will never accomplish. So good luck with that. I want to drive you to frustration. That's not it. Some people think Jesus is saying this to drive you to confess your sin and to look to him for forgiveness. And I think that's a part of it, that when he calls us to, to, to have that standard, certainly we recognize we'll never be perfect short of his return. So, you know, we're, we're going to struggle and we're going to need his grace. But I don't think his primary intention here is to drive you to frustration, giving you a, an impossible to do. I think what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, what I'm calling you to is something that's so much different and so much higher than this, than this worldly standard that you're looking at. He says, be perfect. Why? Because we're kingdom citizens. Be holy, Leviticus 19. Why? Because God is holy. And the people who belong to him pursue holiness. Don't think of perfection here as I never make mistakes. Think of perfection here in terms of I actually am dedicated to and set apart for living in a distinctly Christian way. That's what I'm called to. It's, it's beautiful in Ezekiel's image. Ezekiel's image of the of the, uh, the, our eternal home with the Lord and the new Jerusalem and the temple. He talks about the pots and the pans. He says, even the pots and the pans are holy, dedicated to the Lord, special. And that, can I just, you know, you and me this morning, we're pots and pans. We're common people. We're common people, but we have been dedicated to a higher purpose. We have been sanctified by faith in Jesus. We are now called to a higher standard of living. So why would we pursue this crazy call to heavenly ethics in the midst of living in a broken world? Well, the answer is because of the grace of God. So don't get overwhelmed when he says, be perfect. Recognize that this is all leveraged on the grace of God. And incidentally, When push comes to shove, how could we ever love our enemies? How could we ever live in the ways that Jesus has described here in the Sermon on the Mount? It's only by his spirit equipping us, his spirit leading us, his spirit convicting us and telling us, no, 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 we got to get back in line over here. Why? Well, because we're called as kingdom citizens to live differently. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we're not reading a list of to-dos to earn forgiveness. Jesus is saying, this is what my disciples are like. This is what they're passionate for. This is what they live for. It's not how citizens get into the kingdom. It's what kingdom citizens are living for and striving for in their lives. Kingdom citizens love their enemies. Why? Because kingdom citizens live like the king. We know that early Christians took this very seriously. We know because in the book of Acts, chapter 6, we meet Stephen, who was an early leader in the church in Jerusalem. Stephen was preaching the gospel and ministering, and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had decided that they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and so they had rejected Stephen and his teaching, and he, he had enemies. He had people who were talking that, bad about him, that he was teaching a false doctrine, 
that he needed to be silenced. And so his enemies filed charges against him. And then his enemies grew. They, now he had more enemies, official enemies, enemies that were in the Sanhedrin. And so they arrested Stephen. You remember in Acts chapter 6? And they brought him before the Sanhedrin and he faced these charges. And so his enemies came at him with all that they had. And Stephen took that opportunity. I don't know if you remember in Acts chapter 7 where he goes on to preach an amazing sermon where he goes over a big chunk of Old Testament history and just showing how all of it points to Jesus being the Messiah, and that's the inevitable conclusion. And his enemies were just furious that he would make this claim, and they were so angry about him, and they were so opposed to him. And so they, there was an outburst at the end of the sermon, and they, they immediately sentenced him to death by stoning. I know you know that story, but do you remember how it went down? When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen's last words were to pray for those who persecuted him. I cannot doubt that that young man holding the coats there was impacted by what he witnessed. He didn't turn around that moment, but it wasn't long before God called Saul to a different life and ministry, radically changing his destiny. You know, we read about Stephen doing that, and it just shows that when Stephen heard the Sermon on the Mount, in whatever context he heard it, he believed it. And it transformed him to the point that when there was an angry crowd of his peers rushing to put him to death, his spirit-driven reflex there was not to curse his enemies and not to fight back and not to protect himself. His spirit-driven reflex was to pray for those who persecuted him. I share that with you in conclusion, not because that is an unattainable example, but because, brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, by his spirit, you and I can live this way. And yes, it's crazy. And yes, it'll blow people's minds. And that's exactly the point. Kingdom citizens love their enemies. Why? Because kingdom citizens live like the king. I know it's hard, so let's pray together and ask God to help us live in this radically different way. Lord, we humble ourselves before you once again this morning, recognizing your sovereignty over every square inch of this universe, over every person, including those, Lord, who would oppose us. And as we think about this passage of Scripture, Lord, we ask for your help. Because 
if we're honest, Lord, we all know that we have enemies, people that we would rather not love. Sometimes they're even close to us. Family, friends, Lord, coworkers, fellow students, Lord, we ask that you would help us to love our enemies. Without distinction, because you love without distinction, because you cause the sun to rise and shine on the, the good and the wicked, and you, you cause the rain to fall on the good and the wicked. And Lord, we thank you for common grace and just that reminder that if we are your sons and daughters, we will live like your sons and daughters. But Lord Jesus, especially this morning, we praise you because you died for your enemies. We thank you for dying for our sins so that we can cease to be your enemies and we can become your brothers and sisters in the kingdom. And Lord, we ask that you would be glorified as we imitate your love for us. Lord, we pray especially for the specific challenges here. Lord, as we interact with people, the way we speak, the way we act towards others, we pray that you would help us to respond in distinctly Christian ways. And Lord, even as we think about this calling to be perfect, Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed by that calling, to not view it as an, an impossible task, but rather, Lord, to see it as, as our ethic, as our new standard of living. And we thank you that you have gifted us with your spirit to equip us to live this way, to live differently. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that. And we pray that, that people in our community would notice the difference and they would wonder why are we so different and that we could point them to you. And Lord, in that, you would be glorified as lives are changed and as you rescue sinners, as you rescue enemies and transfer them into your kingdom. Lord, help us, we ask you, to love our enemies. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen.